again to another edition of Lost in Science. My name is Stu and on the show with me this week, well, I don't have Claire. Um, Claire has actually recorded an interview with uh, an arachnologist from the Melbourne Museum called Joseph Schubert about a newly described spider called a peacock spider which, if you want to look that up, it looks very cool and quite glam. It's very orange and white and uh, got blue bits on it. It's, it's a very cool-looking spider. Peacock spiders, are, peacock spiders there are beautiful. There's a whole bunch of, of peacock spiders in Australia, and they're the ones that are famous for, for dancing um, as they kind of they do a mating dance. Oh, yes. Yeah, I believe this is a new species that's been discovered. It is a new species, and it was discovered by a citizen scientist. Someone was actually recording spiders and and found a new one chris what have you brought for us this week well i have brought as you can hear a cold virus so apologies for the kind of croaky voice um but we are still recording remotely so no worries about me passing it on through the the microphone or to to my co-hosts fingers crossed fingers crossed fingers crossed um what am i talking about well i'm talking about some what is by now old news. Um, but for nearly a week, the world was entranced by the container ship, the Ever Given, that decided to lodge itself in the in the Suez Canal, thereby um, providing mean content for the world. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where you sort of, you sort of wonder, how has this never happened before? Mm. And uh, I looked, a friend sent me um, an image from a ship tracking app where you could see all the global shipping. And it was literally stopped everywhere all around the globe because of this one little yeah. bottleneck in the Suez. It did um, cause a great disruption to the flow of commerce around the world, but it completely increased the flow of internet humour, which um, <laughs> we can be grateful for. Look, sadly, that is that is now in the past. I mean, it is... It will be a trivia question, obviously, in years to come. So maybe make a note of what happened at this time, because this is, that's, I think, as much as it's going to be remembered, essentially. Yeah. But yeah, the the ship has now been released with the help of tugboats, um, some very gallant excavators digging out little, little ditches around it, and something rather larger, the moon. The moon. The moon helped release the ever given um always the moon's got our back it's there for us when we need it um or our front depending which side it's on exactly um <laughs> yeah so i'm gonna look at how the the moon helped release the ship um spoiler alert it was the tides but um we will look at the how the moon causes tides and what it was in particular about this that that caused the the ever given to finally um be free i really want to know how the tides have uh, such an impact. Um, so please uh, stay tuned for those stories later in the show.
We love a citizen science story on Lost in Science, especially when it leads to the discovery of new species. My guest today is an arachnologist here to tell us about his latest described species of the incredibly charismatic group of spiders, the peacock spiders, with the help of citizen scientists. Joseph Schubert, arachnologist from Melbourne Museum. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Joseph, first things first, can you describe peacock spiders? Okay, so if I were to describe a peacock spider, I would like you to imagine a tiny four millimeter, eight legged kitten. Um, <laughs> they're tiny little jumping spiders, which are incredibly colorful and they, uh, they love to dance. So these spiders perform courtship displays. The males are really colorful and they'll display their colors to females that they're trying to mate with. Did you say an eight legged kitten? Yes, they're, uh, they're really cute, I find. Um, and yeah, they've been compared to kittens before. What do you think about them makes them so cute? Um, well, they've got these massive forward-facing eyes, which I guess makes them more relatable to arachnophobes. And they're really, really tiny, so they're, they're completely harmless and they just hop around and they're very, very curious animals. Oh, they sound adorable, like sort of like a nice entry into the world of spiders for a lot of people maybe. Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of people who are arachnophobic have told me, oh, like, I'm scared of spiders, but these are actually kind of cute, which I love to hear. <laughs> That's great. That's excellent. Is it only the males that have the colourful display? Yeah, that's right. So only the males are colourful and actually only when they're mature. So they spend most of their lives brown in colour and they go through a process called molting, which is where they shed their skin. And each time they shed their skin, they get a little bit bigger. And in their final molt, which is when they're mature, their colours and their reproductive organs will develop. Oh, right. And are we talking like specific colours on the spectrum, like greens and and blues like the peacock or is it more more diverse than that yeah they're massively diverse so some are greens and blues some are reds um and in this case we've got an orange one so they're a massive range of colors how common are they in australia is there a good chance that you know i might have seen one or passed one without even knowing yeah they're incredibly easily overlooked but they're very very common um so in most natural habitats, they're able to be found um, on the ground usually or near the ground, usually in leaf litter or on twigs or on grass. Uh, I've actually found them in my backyard in suburban Melbourne, so they're quite common indeed. Whoa, suburban as well. Yes. <laughs> so they occupy a lot of different places. Yeah, that's right, and in a variety of habitats too. So they range from coastal habitats to um, to the deserts, and then in this case with this new species to an ephemeral swampland, which is really amazing. Okay, so um, you've alluded to a new species a couple of times. I'm very excited to talk to you about that. Can you tell us a bit about this new species um, that's just been published? Yeah, so uh, this new species is an orange and white-faced Cute little peacock spider, which I've decided to call Maratus Nemo, <laughs> named after the clownfish. And this species was actually discovered by a citizen scientist who um, was doing some ecological field work. She's actually professional with plants, but um, she happened to be taking photos of jumping spiders because she's interested in them as well and um, posted them on a Facebook group. I came across her post and thought, wow, that looks like a new species. And here we are. 
this is the first time this particular Nemo spider has ever been described. Yeah, so I, I'd never even seen photographs of it before, which is uh, really amazing. And it seems to occupy quite a short range in a very particular type of habitat. So it's um, it's unsurprising that no one's really uh, looked very closely at that type of habitat before for these jumping spiders. And yeah, it's it's really amazing that she was the first one to photograph it and um, post wow. it. Wow. Do you have to go out into that habitat and find other um, specimens of that particular peacock spider to verify that it's a new species? What's that What's that process like? Yeah, so typically I would go out into the field and um, collect specimens myself, but Cheryl, who found it, was actually kind enough to collect me some specimens, um, which I, I was able to then examine in the lab, which was really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And do you think it's only localised to the place where Cheryl found it or um, what are your thoughts around, you know, how it's distributed? Uh, well, it's difficult to say. So it, it probably could occupy a, a larger range than we currently know. Um, there are some species which we only know to only knew to occur in Western Australia that we now know occur in Victoria. So um, ranges can be massively extended. Um, so it's just a matter of looking more to find out. And I understand that the process of naming a new species is not an easy one. Has this been a long has this been a long time coming? Uh, yeah, it's been uh, quite a few months in the making. So she collected the specimens in November last year and the paper was only just published a few days ago. So quite a long time. Joseph, how, do you, how important do you think citizen science is in describing and um, protecting biodiversity? Uh, I think it's massively important. Um, realistically, the scientists who specialise on groups like these can't be everywhere at once. Um, so to have thousands of pairs of eyes looking for new species is incredibly helpful. And also a lot of the time we're stuck in the lab and don't get to do as much field work as we like. So um, having more people out there looking is really, really good. And how would you recommend people get involved with citizen science projects? Well, I think just getting out there and um, taking photographs of interesting looking critters and recording the locality data and uploading them to websites like uh, iNaturalist or onto Facebook groups. Um, I think that's a very, very helpful first step. Um, and then if you have found something interesting, we can use the photographs and the locality data to expand further on a potential discovery. So, I mean, it's interesting to hear, you know, you as an arachnologist are uh, scouring the the facebook pages for you know new photos of things would that be a common sort of thing to, for scientists across the board and biologists across the board to be doing yeah it's definitely becoming a lot more common um i have seen a number of uh, professional taxonomists on a number of these different facebook groups um even for different taxonomic groups not just spiders um, so yeah people are definitely using social media to science's advantage that is a outcome of social media that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it can be used for good sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joseph, um, how many peacock spiders in Australia have been described? Uh, with this edition, it makes it 92 species, so quite a few. That's, that's, a, that's a massive amount. Um, do you think there are more out there? Uh, I, I Quite sure there would be. Um, so 77 or 78 or so of these 92 species have been described and discovered in the last 10 years alone. 
So it, it would be completely unsurprising for more to be out there. Uh, in fact, I've definitely seen photographs of what are likely some under, undocumented species uh, on various platforms like iNaturalist and on social media. So it's just a matter of getting out there and collecting specimens for scientists to do the taxonomic work on them. You're a peacock spider detective. <laughs> you've, got a, <laughs> you've got a couple of leads in the field. That, that's what it feels like sometimes, doing a bit of detective work, and I think that's what makes it uh, really fun. Speaking of field work and having fun, can you? Are there any hilarious stories from the field or um, working with peacock spiders? Probably one of my most memorable stories in the field was uh, working with a mentor of mine uh, named Barbara Bear. She's she's amazing. She's described hundreds and hundreds of species, um, and we were we were out together, and I was putting a wolf spider into a jar, and it it ran up my arm, and I. <laughs> I honestly, I freaked out and I screamed and I flicked it off me and um, she was laughing at me and she was like, oh, I thought you were a, a brave arachnologist, Joseph, what's going on here? And anyway, um, we had our laugh and then a few minutes later, the exact same thing happened to her, it ran up her arm and she let out a big scream and then I was like, ha, huh, there we go, Barbara, who's laughing now? <laughs> That is excellent to know. I'm sure, you know, our listeners around Australia will be very happy to know that even arachnologists get freaked out when spiders ramp your arm. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'm a little bit of an arachnophobe, but I still, I still love them all and appreciate them. <laughs> excellent. Well, Joseph, a big thank you for coming on Lost in Science today and sharing your spidery stories. Congratulations to you and Cheryl on um, the new species, Maritus Nemo if I got that right. That's right, yep. Yes. Um, and best of luck with the hunt for new species of peacock spider. Hope to talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me on. See you soon.
Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and I am talking about the tides and what the, the moon in particular has to do with the tides. Now, um, credit where credit's due, first of all, when we're talking about this, that um, a a lot of the knowledge of how the, the moon causes tides has been known in various people around the world. Um, probably the first would have been uh, the Aboriginal people of Australia, um, our Indigenous Aboriginal people. The Yongu um, in particular have stories about the moon and explaining how the moon is associated with tides. It's something to do with how when the, when the tides are high, then the water fills up the moon as it rises. Um, and when the wood runs out of the moon, the tides fall, and then the moon is empty for another three days. And then the cycle continues. It refills the moon, the moon empties, and um, this is what connects the, the, the movement of the moon with the rising and falling of the, the waters. So, um, yeah, look, it's a bit different to the mechanics as we understand them now, but it shows how there was an understanding of the, um, of the, the moon and its phases to the, to the tides. So they certainly saw an obvious connection between the changes in the moon and the changes that they saw in the tides, which is yeah, you know they that's, did. that's a that's a pretty amazing sort of leap, really. Yeah. Of um, a... deduction. Now, um, as I said, uh, this has been noticed by a lot of people. It turns out it's actually quite complicated to really get to the um, the the bottom of what's happening happening on happening happening with the tides. Um, but the moon is actually the main part of it. Um, so we'll start there. We have a guest, we'll have a guest star coming in at the end of this, by the way, who helped out with the Ever Given as well. But, um, the moon is the main, the main actor here. Okay. So now what it does, it comes down to gravity, of course. So gravitational force as described by Newton's law of universal gravitation, which you may have heard of Isaac Newton, that, that being that particular guy, um, gravitational force varies with distance, um, via an inverse square law. Um, so what this means is that, yeah, you get the different gravitational force at different places. If you have any object that's larger than just a single point, you will get different forces acting on different parts of that object. So if a case of, we're looking at, we just had like the earth and the moon sitting there, um, and we look at the effect of the moon's gravity on the earth and its oceans, you'll find that there is greater force on the, the water of the ocean that's on the side towards the moon than there is on the the solid earth itself and especially on the um the water that's on the far side away from the moon i guess that that's easy to sort of get your head around in the way that you know if if it's gravity of the moon that's attracting uh you know stuff on earth then the water because it's a fluid will get drawn towards the moon and the rocks and other stuff won't get drawn as much towards the moon but it's not as simple as that either is it Oh no! Of course, it's not. Of course, it's not true. And actually, the rocks do get drawn a little bit because the Earth is not completely solid either. It's got molten rock inside it, and there's a lot going on there. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's basically it is sounds a pretty straightforward thing. Now, the it does. I guess. Look, I don't want to go too much in details of the mathematics because we are a radio program, and also you know people people will just fall asleep if I go into that. But the um, the the actual force that you have, the extra force from the moon pulling up on the ocean, is actually quite small compared to the gravitational pull of the Earth itself on that ocean. So it's about one ten millionth of a g of you know of the Earth's gravitational pull. 
Um, so the actual force pulling the, the ocean up is actually small relatively. This is why when the moon goes overhead, things don't suddenly lift off off the ground. Um, the moon doesn't levitate objects. But what happens with the ocean is that it also acts on all the, this force acts on all the water that's between those two extremes and kind of pulls it along sideways towards uh, the bulge um, and on the side of the moon. And that, that sort of lateral force, it's pulling um, on all the water that's, that's kind of between um, both ends of the earth, that is enough to raise the water on either side and lower the water at the points in between. So that's so, why you get that's why you get daily tides, basically. Well, twice daily tides generally yeah. is where it goes because, like I said, you get a bulge on the side that's facing where the moon is, and you get a bulge on the other side which is facing away from the moon. So what you would get then, you'd get um, a high tide when the moon is directly overhead, and another high tide when the moon is on the other side of the Earth directly underfoot, uh, and then you get low tides at moonrise and moonset. Right. Again, though, it gets a bit more complicated than that because, firstly, the moon is orbiting the Earth while the Earth is rotating. Um, so the kind of the Earth the rotation goes is trying to catch up to the moon, um, but this means the moon the moon rises about fifty minutes later each day, um, and that means the time between high tides is not exactly say twelve hours; it's twelve hours twenty five minutes. So it actually it actually varies quite a bit moonrise from day to day obviously yeah but it also doesn't happen exactly at those points where the moon is directly overhead and the moon is directly underfoot because this is not just a case of everything happens instantaneously you've got a lot of water that has to move around uh, plus there are all these land masses in the way there's different depths etc like if we just had a perfectly spherical non-rotating earth with no land masses it would be it would be very simple but the real world is not like that of course um, and so in some places you get things like where the high tide is ahead of the movement of the moon, sometimes it's behind, sometimes it's hard to get the signal, this twice daily signal of the moon at all because of the, the way the local conditions, um, and it also affects the height of the tides, the, the local shape, like if the, um, if it was just jammed to the moon, then the difference between high and low tide would be at 54 centimetres, but in some places it can be much more depending on the local kind of geography, and sometimes it's much less. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. of this water moving around in waves around the earth and in different shapes there are a lot of other effects that pile up and it can be very hard to theoretically predict how this will all work what you actually have to do is monitor a particular location and find out what these rhythms are and once you know the rhythms there are only sort of set kind of cycles that apply and once you work out how those rhythms work in that particular location you can then predict out in the future to predict um get tide charts which is what people of course use for fishing and boating and that kind of stuff most yeah, of those they just are, publish them publish them in the paper yeah 
Yeah, most of those rhythms are worked out by William Thompson, uh, also known as Lord Kelvin, in the 1860s. So yeah, there's a lot going on there. I won't go into all those other effects, but the most important one is our special guest star, which is the sun. Hey. star. Of course. Why did now, you think of that? Now, the sun obviously is quite large, and the gravitational force of the sun on the Earth is a lot greater than that of the moon, which is why we orbit the sun and we don't orbit the moon. Um, yeah. But... Tidal force is a bit different to just this inverse square law. It actually varies in an inverse cube law because it's kind of an extra effect on top of the gravitational force. So it actually varies in inverse cube law, which means that the tidal force you get from the sun is a lot less than that of the moon. It's actually less than half the effect of the moon. So the moon is the main player, but the sun kind of, it's like, I don't know, a kind of a um, another sort of solo artist on top of the solo or solar artists on top of the moon's basic rhythm, you know, and it's doing, it's improvising. Well, I mean, it's not really improvising because it's still got a given rhythm. It's doing, doing what, jazz, jazz highlights in, in between. That's right. Essentially what it does is either strengthens or weakens the moon tides. So when the sun and moon are on the same side of the earth, they're pulling together, they're working together, they add up and you get a bigger spring tide is what they call it. Same as if the sun is on the opposite side of the earth to the moon then, again, they're pulling... Uh, right, is that right? Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're, they're pulling um, you, you pulling get on the water, you get a spring tide. But in between, when it's like at 90 degrees, um, they're not contributing. You get what's called... That's the lowest tides. It's called the neap tide. Oh, All right? okay. So, um, essentially, what you do is you get... Um, so, like I said, you get the highest the highest tides, the spring tides, when the moon is either on the same side of the earth or the opposite side to the sun. And that happens to be where there's either a full moon or a new moon. So you get the highest tides around the time of the full moon. And what did we have last weekend? We had a full moon. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And what happened then? You had a spring tide. Um, basically, around the, it was getting close to a spring tide because, again, it's not exactly synchronized. But still, you had a spring tide emerging in the Suez the water level was higher than it had been in previous days, and that was enough to to get the boat back in action and back floating and release the tension that had been building up in this particular passage. So, yeah, in that way, it was the it was the moon, but it was actually the sun and the moon working together along with all the tugboats and everyone else that um, managed to restore global shipping traffic. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.